The Guardian. Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Friday the 9th of April. The Digital Economy Bill is rushed through Parliament as it shuts up shop for the general election. The two things I always say about uh, legislation, you should never do it in haste. And when the political parties agree on something, um, there's no proper scrutiny taking place. What'll the legislation mean for websites and web users? It's very hard to know quite how effective it will be. A lot of the people who know about these sorts of things are saying that they'll start using the same systems that uh, dissidents in China use to get around the Chinese firewall. In other news today, in Kyrgyzstan, the opposition claims it's in control after dozens are killed in a bloody uprising. People who have been killed, who got wounds, they are victims of this regime. People are actually stealing the shrubbery. They'd already stolen the DVD player and the carpets and the curtains. And um, they, were, they were digging up the trees. And I saw one man running off with the president's drain pipe. In South Africa, the ANC's firebrand youth leader, Julius Malema, expels a BBC journalist from a press conference. If you've got a tendency of undermining blacks even where you work, you are in the wrong place. Yeah, you are in the wrong place. That's rubbish. And you can go out. Yeah, you can go out. And can the world's wine critics halt a highway that they say threatens one of the world's finest white wine regions? Some of the wine experts have said they would go out and do anything other than be violent in their attempts to try and stop this from going ahead. First, our top story. The Digital Economy Bill has been sent for royal assent. It was rushed through Parliament in the so-called wash-up. That's the process where business is wound up quickly to clear the decks for the general election. For the first time, the former Cabinet Office Minister Tom Watson voted against the government. He told Media Talk's Matt Wells the bill deserved a more thorough examination. I feel very strongly about digital policy. strongly support internet freedoms. What I thought the digital economy bill and missed opportunity, what we really need in the UK is wholesale copyright reform for the digital age. And essentially what we were doing with this bill is helping old publishing interests manage the politics of decline. And I don't think that's where government should be in this space. Uh, and it it felt, uh, having watched the debate, it felt that this was everything that was bad about our par- parliamentary system, a complex and complicated bill, uh, which has been years in the planning, very controversial, felt felt to many people like, you know, it wasn't in any way, shape or form ready to be enacted into law, rammed through in two hours. Yeah, well, that's how it felt to me. And um, many thousands of people who were watching the debate uh, and, uh, in various media. So, um, I mean, the two things I always say about uh, legislation, you should never do it in haste. And when the parties agree, when the political parties agree on something, um, there's no proper scrutiny taking place. So, um, you know, I was really uh, concerned that it didn't have the proper scrutiny it deserved. Tom Watson on our Media Talk podcast, which you can listen to at guardian.co.uk slash media. While our technology editor, Charles Arthur, explains why the legislation's so controversial. 
Well, it was intended to be uh, quite a, a sort of balm, really, for the for the digital economy. Uh, it was meant to be something which would make Britain into a wonderful high-tech playground. But the part that became contentious very quickly was the measures against Internet piracy, because uh, content companies um, asserted that they're losing millions, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds. The figure 400 million uh, kept on being bandied around uh, every year from uh, Internet piracy and that, uh, therefore, measures need to be taken by the government against it. And uh, clauses 4 to 18 in the bill uh, were ones which basically set out how Ofcom would have to try to get the amount of piracy uh, reduced, and that ISPs would have to start writing letters and uh, an extremist, uh, temporarily suspend, I'll put the words in quotes, uh, the connections of people who were deemed to be uh, continual file sharers. So under what circumstances might people have the internet taken away from them? The way that it was meant to happen, the way that it said that it will happen, is that uh, a content uh, owner, such as a record company, uh, will look on the internet uh, on file sharing networks, and if they see that a particular internet address, an IP address as it's called, uh, is being used for file sharing, then they will get in touch with the internet service provider that owns that IP address and say, look, this person's been, um, you know, infringing copyright, uh, we want you to write a letter to them. So the ISP will, will send a letter to the person, um, the assumption being that uh, the date and the time will give a unique owner of that IP address at that time, which may or may not be, uh, may not be the case. Um, and that by repeatedly uh, warning people about this, by uh, telling them measures that they can take to uh, prevent their systems being used fraudulently, uh, if that's in, indeed what's been happening, um, that you basically cut down uh, the amount of file sharing and the amount of piracy. And what do opponents of this legislation say about that? Uh, opponents say that the measures assume guilt uh, and they never let you prove innocence, uh, that it never comes before a court, or if it does com come before a court, that the expenses are uh, a bit astronomical for, for the average person, and that um, the, the measures are, are really quite out of line, that uh, suspending someone's internet connection in a world which, where we're meant to be moving towards a uh, high-tech economy, which is one of the government's five election uh, sort of planks, um, is one which, which simply isn't in, uh, isn't in proportion to the alleged crime. Another controversial element of this is, is the, the power that it would give the Secretary of State for Business, uh, Peter Mandelson at the moment, of course, to block websites. Which websites might be affected? Well, the, uh, the, the clause uh, in, that was inserted into Clause 8 of the bill uh, gives the Secretary of State the power, um, once a court has determined it, to suspend websites which have been used for copyright infringement substantially or are being used like that or um, could be shown to do so. And as, um, as Paul Hemming, a Lib Dem, uh, pointed out last night, well, that could include Google because people use that to do copyright infringement all the time. And uh, he also pointed out that it could be used against WikiLeaks because WikiLeaks carries copyrighted information all the time uh, sent there by whistleblowers. Uh, so there's a, a very real threat there that um, you know, useful sites, which you know, one has to say WikiLeaks really is, um, could be blocked by the US government making an application to the UK High Court. Charles Arthur, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash technology. Now, from Monday, the 12th of April, Guardian Daily is switching to election mode. Our Guardian Election Daily podcast will be published every day, Monday to Friday, at 5pm, so late afternoon, not in the morning, except on Thursdays 
when we'll be going out a bit later in the evening after the televised debates between the party leaders. Michael White, The Guardian's seasoned political commentator, will be presenting the podcast. I'll be going out and meeting some voters. So that's Guardian Election Daily, 5pm on Monday. Guardian.co.uk slash audio. In Kyrgyzstan, opposition leaders say they're running the country after seizing power in a bloody coup. The Guardian's correspondent Luke Harding is in Bishkek, the capital, and he says it's not really clear who's in control. In theory, uh, there's an interim government in control um, headed by a bunch of opposition leaders, several of whom have been locked up until quite recently, um, and who really, literally overnight, um, after, after the events of Wednesday, when at least 75 people were shot dead by, by government troops, um, really kind of took over, seized power, unveiled a new cabinet, uh, uh, now appears to be running the show. But having said that, John, when I wandered around the central Bishkek yesterday, no one seemed to be in control. There were um, hundreds of um, mainly kind of young men um, milling around the centre of town. The central government building, which was at the centre of events on Wednesday, was on fire and had been comprehensively looted. There were burnt vehicles littering the streets. Um, and there was uh, really a fantastic amount of looting going on, um, including one of the houses belonging to President Bakiev, um, the ousted president, um, where, where I witnessed people actually stealing the shrubbery. They'd already stolen the DVD player and the carpets and the curtains, and um, they, were, they were digging up the trees. And I saw one man running off with the president's drain pipe. <laughs> well, what's happened to the president? Well, that's a very good question. The president disappeared for about 24 hours, and he popped up yesterday um, um, to say that, as far as he was concerned, he was still the president, but that he recognized that his situation was rather a precarious one. He he seems to have taken refuge in um, uh, a southern town called Jalalabad, right next to the border with Tajikistan, which is his traditional stronghold. Um, And one interesting question here now is whether he might try and mount some kind of comeback. Now, the, the, the Kyrgyz I've talked to on the streets today say that there's not much possibility of that because even though he's from the South, a lot of people in the South hate him as well. Um, and he's basically been deeply unpopular for a number of reasons. But uh, the thing which has really kind of triggered the revolution here has been a, a massive increase in, in uh, the costs, the prices for water and electricity um, in, in a country full of poor people. And what role, if any, has Russia played in events in Kyrgyzstan? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, Vladimir Putin, Russia's prime minister, has has said that um, Russia hasn't interfered at all. And whenever Vladimir Putin says something like that, immediately you think that actually maybe he he has been interfering (laughs) behind the scenes. I mean, it's certainly true that Kyrgyzstan is at the centre of this great geopolitical tussle between Moscow and Washington and Beijing, all of whom have an interest in the region. The U.S. has a big airbase outside the capital, Bishkek, uh, Manas Airbase, which it uses to supply Afghanistan. Um, and the Russians have been trying to keep the Americans out. Now, very interestingly, Vladimir Putin, who I have to say is, is, is no fan of democratic um, awakening or uprising in Russia, has already called the new um, leader of this interim government to congratulate her and has said he's ready to work with her. So I think the Russians are hoping that the new regime will be slightly more friendly towards Russia and slightly more hostile towards Barack Obama. Luke Harding in Bishkek. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.
Riesling's been described as the jewel in the crown of German wine, and it's been cultivated along the banks of the Moselle River for many centuries. Now wine critics are up in arms about plans for a road bridge over the river. In Berlin for The Guardian is Kate Connolly. There are plans to build a 160-metre high bridge that would span the Moselle River Valley and would connect two low mountain ranges. And in these mountain ranges, uh, you've got some uh, high-class vineyards that have been around for probably around 2,000 years. And uh, basically what wine experts are saying is that the B50, this four-lane road bridge, uh, would effectively destroy much of the world's great wine estates were it to go ahead and be built. Because this is a sort of unique climate for growing uh, these cultivating wine, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it all sounds sort of quite mysterious and interesting when they when the wine experts talk about it. But uh, effectively, what you have is a very sleek, uh, steep slate slope, uh, if you can say that, a steep slate slope, um, which basically overlooks the rivers and it absorbs the sun's warmth during the day, so they tell me, and it releases it at night. And the vines there have to work very, very hard. Um, they reach deep into the chalky, sandy soils. Um, and effectively, then you get this um, these wine wonderful wonderful grapes that then are turned into Riesling which uh, as I spoke to Hugh Johnson the wine expert he told me that uh, it produces this unique taste of a kind of feathery um, intense a lightness but also a great intensity and a wine that um, in recent years thanks to people like Hugh Johnson and Jancis Robinson the British wine expert have really um, really come into their own and become world uh, world-class wines or wines that are recognized as world-class wines have you not tried any yourself Kate well, indeed, I have. I, I love I love my Riesling, um, and uh, um, and it is certainly a, it's a wine that that has grown on me. You know, I think people were very dismissive of German wines for for many years, largely because the uh, German uh, wine producers uh, were not really encouraged, or it was kept very local. Um, there's lots of political reasons for that, um, but it is thanks to a lot of world wine experts um, that these wines are now well known, and they are the ones who have jumped in now and are trying to stop this bridge being built. And will the collective fury of the world's wine critics actually stop this highway in its tracks? Well, some of them I've spoken to say yes, it will. Others say that they are doubtful. There's very strong political will for this um, bridge to be built, um, effectively creating, they say, a better transport link um, between places like uh, Belgium and uh, the nearby airport that's used a lot by carriers such as Ryanair in near to Frankfurt. Others say that there's a lot of short-sighted um, political thinking here um, that it will actually go ahead. The digging has started um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see that some of the wine experts have said they would go out and do anything other than be violent but in their attempts to try and stop uh, to stop this from going ahead. Um, what is going to happen on Sunday in Berlin, the political heart of Germany, um, they're coming together to meet with uh, German politicians, the, the people like Jancis Robinson, Hugh Johnson um, and Stuart Piggott who's another British wine expert based in Berlin and they're going to um, taste the wines and hope to convince the politicians to reverse it to stop the bridge from being built. Kate Connolly. In South Africa amid rising racial tensions in the build-up to the World Cup the ANC's youth leader Julius Malema kicked BBC journalist Jonah Fisher out of his press conference yesterday calling him a bastard and a bloody agent. The Guardian's David Smith 
was also there. A press conference at uh, Latuli House, home of the African National Congress, the governing party in South Africa, Julius Malema, who is a very polarising, controversial figure, is the leader of the ANC's Youth League, who is holding a press conference to talk about his recent visit to Zimbabwe. And due to recent troubles, uh, there were many journalists there, including a man from the BBC. And you know nothing about the revolution. So, so they're, they're, they're not going to be certain, but you are. Yeah, you behave or else you jump. <laughs> yeah, you don't laugh. It's a joke. Uh, Chief, can you get security to remove this thing? <laughs> if, if you're not going to behave, you're going to call security to take you out. This is not a, 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 a newsroom, this. This is a revolutionary house. And you don't come here with a, that 10 days. Don't come here with that white tendon. Not yet. You can do it somewhere else. Not yet. If you've got a tendency of undermining blacks even where you work, you are in the wrong place. Yeah, you are in the wrong place. That's rubbish. And you can go out. Yeah, you can go out. You are a small boy. You can't do anything. I didn't come here to be Come out. Go out. Bastard. Go out. Bloody so he's thrown this BBC journalist out of the press conference. Um, do we know why he did this? He was very riled that the BBC journalist interrupted him and uh, had what he saw as the audacity to challenge him. Um, you know, Malema had been criticising Zimbabwe's opposition, the movement for democratic change for... Um, having using offices in Santon, a, a wealthy suburb of Johannesburg, and um, Jonah Fisher of the BBC put it to him that you know he himself lives in Santon, so uh, the implication being he was being somewhat hypocritical, and as you can imagine, all the journalists were somewhat on the edge of their seat at this piece of political theatre. There was then an, a round of questions, and I asked uh, Julius Malema why he had ejected a BBC journalist. It's not a beer only. It's not a drunk beer or cheap beer or this. And you ask anybody, including political parties, which tried to undermine the house, what happened to them? You can undermine all of us, but not the house. Never undermine the house. When you are here, you are in a different terrain. You are in our space. You are going to behave in a manner in which that is befitting of being in the ANC office. You don't howl yet. Especially when we speak, you behave like you are in an American press conference. It's not America. It's Africa. You must behave in an African way. You are in Rome, you do what the Romans do. This is my house. And you behave according to the rules of my house. Malema has a very checkered relationship with, with journalists. At one point he told us um, we were insane and um, that uh, you know, we, we write crazy things about him. And uh, you know, only a few weeks ago, he was actually producing dossiers on South African journalists uh, trying to get them sacked. David Smith. Andy Duckworth was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. Don't forget, we're back at 5pm on Monday, Guardian Election Daily with Michael White. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio